when someone gets debt, it's not about the amount of debt. It's about the payment on the debt. When you buy a house, you don't say, I want an $800,000 house until you figure out what the payment on that $800,000 house will be. And that's the same when you look at payments on any kind of debt. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another ultra super duper exciting episode of the Personal Wealth Coach, where we talk about the fascinating and most exciting thing on the planet economics. Yeah, um, I may have overhyped that a little bit, but hopefully, I think, I think you, I think you did overhype it just a little bit. Uh, we got a lot to live up to. That's all I got to say. This is Jake McClure. This is the personal wealth coach on the line with me. I have elder Baldy, Jeff, Jeff McClure. McClure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We actually said that together. You may not have heard it that way though. I don't know. Um, we are, uh, not only the hosts of this program, the personal wealth coach, we are also the principals at a sec registered investment advisory firm under the same name, the personal wealth coach. Now, just because that investment advisory firm is registered with the SEC doesn't mean that they have given any kind of approval, denial, excruciating pain or pleasure in any way to anyone because the SEC doesn't do that. Uh, and to fill that out the rest of the, of the way, what we do when we're not on the radio is fiduciary investment advice, where we talk to clients uh, and put their interests way ahead of our own. In fact, in a lot of cases, we have to do what's called in the client's sole interest. And we can't do that on the radio because the concept of sole interest when you're in a mass of people listening, I think there's an oxymoron. Wait, did I just call myself a name? Yeah. Yeah, and it sounds like a toxic chemical. Right. So uh, we're going to be offering education on the air here. What we're trying to do is get you the information you need to make decisions better rather than telling you how to make your decisions. And I know that's weird because radio personalities are supposed to tell you what to think. Well, we're just trying to tell you how to prepare to decide for yourself what you should think. I know, weird, um, personal responsibility and weird stuff like that. But yes, so those were two of our disclosures. Do you want to uh, deem to tell us the other disclosures? Well, the information we provide on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of such said, said information, such said information, such said, 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 such, whatever right. information, such and such information. Which is a very legalistic disclosure disclaimer. It's a disclaimer, actually. It really is, is a disclosure. disclosure. Yeah, it's yeah. saying we're doing our best, but if the Wall Street Journal messes up or the Department of Treasury messes up, that's on them. We're trying to get our the best information possible. And it might still be on us if we're making stuff up. Yeah, but we don't do that. I don't know. Did you just make that up, that we don't make stuff up? Nope. Okay. Fact. Good. good. We've got that logic loop sealed then. We're good. 
And would you like to tell us about the markets this last week? Well, it was an interesting week in the markets. There was a lot of zigzagging around. It was the market was actually down for the week, Wednesday and Thursday, and then it went up Friday and it went up Friday on bad news, which is something that happens in the market sometimes. Um, the investors in the stock market, at least short-term investors in the stock market, the traders who drive the day-to-day values in the stock market, are pretty deeply concerned about interest rates because higher interest rates equate to lower returns for stocks, theoretically. Not necessarily always true, but that's what they believe. And so the this the Labor Department sent out a disappointing report, which we'll talk about later. And it sent the S and P 500 stock index soaring to a new record on Friday. It was up. It was at 4232.60, up 1.23 percent for the week and 12.69 percent year to date, which is good. That's we're just over a third of the year in, and we're up almost 13 percent. Uh, I guess it's good. It makes you makes you feel better when you look at your portfolio balance. Um, the cause behind the rise was with jobs expanding with lower than with a lower than expected rate. In other words, instead of getting a million new jobs like we thought in April, we got about two hundred sixty six thousand net new jobs minus it's new jobs minus layoffs. Um, it was much lower, like a quarter of what was expected. As a result, the Federal Reserve would probably hold interest rates down longer and continue to buying bonds longer, which holds interest rates down. I would, I'd like to point something out. We'll, we'll talk about this more later, but this was a, a surprise to a lot of economists because the consensus expectation, whatever that means, some kind of average of averages of economics folks, uh, I, I don't know that I've ever heard economists on the same stage have a consensus I think that's another oxymoron. I don't think that they're capable of having a consensus. But somehow, the economics consensus numbers said that that they were expecting a million jobs added in April. Instead, we got 266,000. That's a massive difference. For those of you who didn't get that immediately, 266,000 is a lot less than a million, Just, just greater than, less than stuff. It was a really big surprise considering that ADP, which is a private employment services company, came out with 855,000 new jobs in the private sector for the month of April. When And then that usually is an indication that we're going to, if they give a high number, normally we get a high number from the federal government. There were some things in there, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Let's talk about the market a little bit. Okay. The S&P 500, as I said, is up 12.69% year-to-date, but that's, there's another quarter of the S&P 500. The S&P 500 is driven by the largest stocks, and it's driven primarily recently by the large-cap growth stocks. But the other corner of the S&P 500, where you have mid-cap value stocks, which are the smaller stocks that are still in the S&P 500, small stocks don't make it into the S&P 500. So these are the smallest of the big ones. They're not. Yeah, they're not growth. They're not growth oriented. They're value oriented. They're companies that are based on the value of their intrinsic assets. And by the way, what we call the smallest of the big stocks. I know this is a stretch for a lot of people. It's very technical. We call them mid or medium. I know, stretching yeah. out there for really technical terms, but we're yeah. calling them mid size instead mid-cap of big size or little size. Yeah. So up in one corner, if you look at you think about a Morningstar style box, up in one corner is large cap growth, and down in the other corner of the S and P five hundred is mid cap value. 
Well, the mid-cap value index, the CRSP mid-cap value index, rose 2.77% for the week, which is obviously a lot more than 1.23. But more importantly, it's now up almost 22% for 2021, compared with 12.69% for the S&P 500. Now, the value side of the market has been on the losing end of things. It's not losing money, but it has not grown as fast as the growth side of the market for almost a decade now. And now value is taking off. And with each week, we see a little better progression. There seems to be a shift going on in the stock market, investment shift, where people are gradually pulling money out of the large cap growth stocks and putting it into the mid cap value stocks. I don't know whether this will continue or not. I don't know. Well, I over mean, the very long term, over right. the very long term, value stocks tend to outperform growth stocks. And over the very long term, smaller stocks tend to outperform larger stocks. And that's been reversed for the last five years or so. Right. What we tend to see coming out of recessions is that mid mid-sized companies tend to, to be the ones historically coming out of depressions and recessions. These are the companies that lead the charge. So it's not surprising to us to see this happening. In fact, if you listen to us last year in the middle of the worst part of the worst part of the lockdown and shutdown and everything else, you'll be able to verify that. that this, we said this is what we expect to happen on the other end of it. It's, we're actually seeing it. I'm not doing that to rip my arm out of socket and pat myself on the back. Yeah, we know you are. Uh, all right. Ow. Ah, that was my shoulder. Uh, okay. Yep. Yep. We patted our side. That was like a humble brag there. Sorry guys. Um, but it's not a difficult prediction to make in a downturn because looking back at history, that's just the way it's always been. So when we're making the same prediction now that value tends to be the thing that leads us out of recessions. Yeah. The, we always cover the treasury market because it's important. The interest rates are very predictive and they also have a lot to do with everything that happens in the country. Uh, also predictive of inflation. U.S. Treasury note yield slipped to 1.575, which doesn't sound too significant, but it was up. It's been up as high as 1.75, back to 1.575, about where it was in the beginning of March. So let me explain what causes that. It's within the trading range, but when there's a lot of people buying treasuries, when there's more buyers than sellers, volume of buying than volume of selling of treasuries, the interest rates tend to come down, and the price of the treasuries tend to go up. And of course, the reverse is true on the other side. But apparently, there's quite a few people buying treasuries right now. I don't know why, but they are particularly outside. Well, outside the United States, I can understand why. Germany's 10-year uh, note is still low zero. So they can get some good interest rates in the United States, relatively speaking. And as they buy these 10-year treasuries, they're in essence making a bet that there won't be a lot of inflation coming along, which causes interest rates to go down on the 10-year treasury. Right. Uh, you'll... Yield curve remains quite steep. Uh, it's forecasting better times ahead. Uh, that's an important thing to keep an eye on. West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil Futures climbed 2.11% to $64.81 a barrel. No, that's within the trading range again, and that is a good healthy price for oil. There, there is, yeah. let, me, let me throw in a key figure here. We saw some price increase at the pump already beginning right now. Because, oh, well, it's been going on a bit, yeah. Yeah, but, but there's a cyber attack that just took place on Colonial Pipeline, which is the pipeline that takes uh, refined like gasoline um, up from the south to the northeast. And it got shut down 
uh, it actually, I'm not, I haven't heard news that it has started back up again because of a cyber attack. So when we're already experiencing supply chain issues and getting things from one place to another issues, it's going to be interesting to see who instigated the cyber attack and what our response to it is. It's probably just going to get forgotten in the media, in the news uh, by next week. I hope it doesn't get forgotten because this is, these are, this is an attack on the United States. Right. It happens to be at the same time that the United States is delisting from the New York Stock Exchange the three major telecom companies in China. This is over an executive order that was signed by President Trump, reviewed by Biden, and upheld. So those of you that are out there that thought Biden was going to come in and be a milksop to China, I highly recommend you go and watch a couple of videos of, of the... Uh, Secretary of State's conversations with the top diplomat of China. They have not been on friendly terms. In the UN this week, there was some sparring, pretty amazing stuff we haven't seen like that. China and Russia are kind of banding together and on a lot of issues like this. Wouldn't surprise me a bit that it was China or Russia that instigated this attack. But it could also still be one of those rogue Nigerian companies and the pipeline just was operating on bad technology. That's Part of infrastructure is figuring out how to protect against this stuff. Yep, and that's uh, that's one of the things that is going on in the in the economy right now. Is we're looking at our we're looking at our infrastructure. We're looking at the supply chains we have, and we've discovered that a lot of them are fairly fragile compared to what we thought they were. And cybernetics is one of the areas where we need to be particularly careful. And I don't know that the, that people are being careful enough. Most of these hacks, by the way aren't from some sophisticated computer program breaking through the code. Most of the hacks are by somebody sending a phishing email to somebody and then opening it. And, and that, then they type in a password and that gives them an interest to the system. Uh, there, there's a lot we can talk about on this subject too. I plan on talking about more on this, but you were talking about West Texas Intermediate. That's unrefined. So the numbers aren't going to show on the price of oil when there's a weird thing that takes place in in the refining process or a weird thing that takes place in the pump uh, of the piping of the refined products to somewhere else. So I wanted to throw that in. This was a, it's a big thing. And we, you might see a more direct representation of that on the pumps. It may be cheap, cheaper in Texas for a while because that yeah, stuff got, isn't moving and they got to do something with it. That's true. And the demand for fuel is up. So the prices tend to go up. We'll see if prices drop suddenly. That's because the Northeast is not getting any fuel. But I don't know. I don't think it'll last that long, personally. I don't think so either. I think hopefully that they've got some backstops on their equipment. Anyway, that that pipeline company is Colonial Pipeline Company, which uh, it's a fifty-five hundred mile pipe. Just thinking of the logistics of putting a pipe that far. That that is like a miraculous achievement in any other time in history. And we're just like, yeah, yeah, it got shut down by a cyber attack. It's probably not that big a deal. <laughs> it's amazing. It'd be like, I don't know, shutting down all of the car traffic from Texas to the Northeast. I think people would be a little upset and surprised by that. Instead, it was just shutting down gasoline, which people don't pay attention much to. They don't, Put their until they don't have it until, until they don't have it exactly exactly and they pay then they pay a lot of attention to it well that's it for the markets okay well man well, 
we have we could, questions waiting. We've got lots of lots of news this week. What do you want to hit first? Probably ought to hit the questions first. All right. John, our by far most faithful quester. Did we tell people how to contact us? We haven't yet. We should do that. Uh, if you want to contact us and have us actually answer your question, we're not taking phone calls. I know. It's weird. We're doing emails. Jake at tpwc.com. That's the personal wealth coach or Tango Papa Whiskey Charlie. Or Jeff at tpwc.com. Preferably both so that we can both look at the question while answering it. Uh, if you've got a question that has anything to do with finance, this would be a good place to send it. If you have a question that has anything to do with sports, it's only a good place if you have a good sense of humor because we don't do sports at all. Like none. Yeah. Zero. Um, that's, that's an understatement. I don't know who won the Super Bowl. I, I don't know. If, if you listed three teams for me from different sports, I wouldn't be able to name which sport they play for. Unless it's somebody like the Dallas Cowboys, because you cannot avoid that growing up in Texas. Oh, that's football. Uh, but that's, that's kind of pretty close to the limit. And the Bulls, because when I was a kid, I remember Michael Jordan played for the Bulls, and that was basketball. But now we're stretching to the very edges of my knowledge on sports. If you want to ask you. about finance, we're a good place to do. If you want to ask about sports and get some very goofy answers, that's fine too. Yep. Okay, so this question, John sends in a, an email. The, the subject is inflation portfolio. And then he's got a, it, this is a pretty traditional thing that John does. He, he takes the Wall Street Journal in paper form and then takes a digital pap- picture of it and sends it as part of the question to us. So we're looking at the digital form on our end and then the digital form of the paper form from him. It's, it's fascinating stuff. Um, and his question is about the last paragraph of this article. Um, and the last paragraph of the article, and it's, it's about Yellen's, uh, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary's comments on interest rates. Uh, she was in an interview earlier this week where she was asked about interest rates and what to do about the long-term spending proposals. So she should have known better. She really should have known better than to answer this directly. But in her new role of being a public person, she's got to answer questions. And as the Fed, you try to obfuscate as much as you can and just say, leave as many doors open as possible. Don't commit to anything unless you're really committed to it. Well, the question was about her statement was, it may be that interest rates will have to rise somewhat to make sure that our economy doesn't overheat, even though the additional spending is relatively small relative to the size of the economy. First thing to note of that sentence, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, interest rates going up. No, don't take a step back. This sounds like a completely different person than Janet Yellen as the, the head of the Fed. If she had said a sentence the same length, Maybe three people out of a hundred would have been able to understand each word, and maybe one person out of 10,000 would have understood what she said as a whole. Because as the Fed, you've got to talk in very, very cryptic terms, very riddleish, unless you, the whole Fed's made the decision. So that's the first thing to know. Number one, she's not in the Fed anymore. She can't control interest rates. 
You can tell that by the way she said it and where she is now. So two, she was referring to the Biden administration's planned long-term spending. Some of it is many years down the road. And her, her statement was to say, yeah, at some point we got to raise interest rates. But she was not as cryptic as Powell is or any other member of the Fed, including herself, has been. And so the market went, oh, no, the Fed's going to raise interest rates, which kind of dovetails nicely into John's next question here about what is the Treasury? What is the Fed? What's the difference between the two? Okay, so what is that last paragraph he's referring to in the question? He says, she said this, what's going on? Well, the last paragraph is this, a hint of deviation from the Fed's existing policy, apparently from any source in any context, will continue to be seen as the greatest risk of an upset of already highly, very highly valued equity markets. That is true. Any view, anytime we get to the point where the market is as high as it is and we start ignoring statements that interest rates might go up, that's a sign we're in a bubble. We're not in the bubble yet. The fact that the market shifted so much over such a little statement from someone who vaguely has some relationship with the Fed is important here. His last paragraph that he took a picture of, it's too soon to go all in on the idea that inflation is inexorably headed higher, but it would be crazy to build a portfolio that didn't consider inflation a major risk. Yeah. If you, if you have a, all, all bond portfolio, for example, and you have all long-term bonds and you think that's cool. Uh, bonds have been going up for 30 or 40 years. They'll probably continue to go up forever. You are at high risk for inflation. That's, that's just a factor. Uh, the, the stocks tend to rise with inflation over time. Uh, the sudden, sudden introduction of a threat of inflation would probably cause stocks to drop temporarily, but then they would come back up again because they're, some, they're an object. Stocks are things. They're stuff that you own. They tend to increase in value with inflation. Bonds don't. Bonds are If you buy a bond for $1,000, it's going to pay you $1,000 back when it matures, period. If that $1,000 has been subject to inflation, is worth less than 1000 too bad, so sad. And the more inflation there is, the more the interest rates will rise. The more interest rates rise, the more bond portfolio goes down. And I mentioned this last week, but if you'd bought a year ago in the middle of the crisis, if you'd gone into 10-year treasuries and bought a wad of 10-year treasuries at about a year ago, they'd be worth 10% less today than when you bought them, and they only were paying 0.61%, so it's going to take you about 12 years, and you don't have that long. You will never recover the the loss unless you hold them to maturity, and then if there's any inflation between now and maturity, and there will be, you'll basically wind up after inflation with a loss in those 10-year treasuries. But you did it without a great deal of risk to the principle itself, just the inflationary risk, because the government's going to pay back its debt. That's the assumed right. position. Yeah. So you get your dollars back, but my after you, you don't get a compensation for inflation and you're not getting compensation for inflation now. So that's, that's the example of the risk that the, that paragraph is talking about. Um, and and he, the, the fact that the market reacted to the treasury secretary saying this, maybe it's like, some old computer algorithms were still stuck in there looking for Janet Yellen talking about interest rates. I don't know. Uh, it could just be that a lot of people decided, hey, she maybe she's going to raise interest rate. Well, this is the 
Next question. Tell us again the responsibilities and differences in the two organizations, the Fed and the Treasury. What are they? And what were you going to say? One thing that I think is important to note is that the market reaction to Janet Yellen's statement was very fleeting. It was temporary dip and then came back again immediately. Right. Because I think it was some, there's a lot of people in the market that don't have a lot of experience with investing and they don't really understand inventors, what interest rates mean. They just knee jerk reaction, interest rates. If, if she says inflation is going up, we must we'll sell right now. And then the wiser heads took over and bought from them, and then the market went back up. The market closed this week at an all-time record, uh, the S&P 500, as did the mid-cap value index. So I don't think her statement basically just went by. And then people, there's a lot of new investors in the market who will tend to panic at almost anything. And thank God there's enough older investors in the market to step in and make up the difference. All right. So what is the difference between the Treasury and the Fed? I told you we would be talking about the most interesting and exciting things. This is right up there with explosions in a movie. What's the difference between the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve? Well, it depends on what explosion I'm talking about in the movie, I suppose. I actually think this is interesting. I know that's weird, but that's why we do a radio program on it. The Treasury is as old as our country or very close. Um, and they have a lot of duties. Uh, primary duties are from the beginning printing the, uh, in circulation physical money. That's the mint. They have the mint, um, collecting taxes. That's the IRS, uh, issuing debt to pay for government spending. That's bonds. Anytime we say treasury bond, it's because it came from the treasury department. The treasury department issued it. Uh, so that's, uh, in their terms, processing the sale and redemption of treasury bonds, notes, and bills in the, is the responsibility of the Bureau of the Fiscal Service. That is. the bureau. There, there's a whole series of bureaus. There's the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, the Internal Revenue Service, the Financial Management Service. That's about balancing budgets. And by that, I don't mean balancing the budget like not having more debt. I mean like balancing your checkbook type balancing the budget, where they are just saying hey, the right amount of money got spent on these different things. Um, And then they have an oversight uh, job for savings institutions and national banks. Now, the national banks is a big statement because this is the federal government. They don't, they don't, the government doesn't regulate intrastate. It's not inside a state. It's anything that goes across state borders uh, that the, Treasury Department steps in and, and is one of the oversights there. That's the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and the Office of Thrift Supervision. Well, the Federal Reserve is not even a governmental organization. I know there's a lot of shock about that because often people talk about the feds are here when they're talking about the federal government. When, when we talk about the Fed in the market, we're talking about the Federal Reserve. What is the Federal Reserve? It is... An institution set up by Congress in, I know this is going to be a a crazy statement, in the act called the Federal Reserve Act. Yep. Wow, that was an original name for it. Right. Um, And it instituted uh, a kind of an agreement between banks and a regulatory oversight over the banks. It's called a self-regulatory organization. A lot of people will, will say the Fed's an SRO. Well, 
now you got it. Acronyms are just part of the world these days. I think it's stupid that we're so caught up in long-windedness. What, what does it mean? Their job, number one, is to protect the value of the currency. They're fighting against inflation and deflation, and they're trying to do it as apolitically as possible. I know that's hard to believe when every president that has been alive during my lifetime, and I'm sure before, has criticized the Federal Reserve for whatever it is that they're doing. It sounds political. The, there are members of the Federal Reserve uh, that are appointed by the president and, and approved by the Senate. And then there are members of the Federal Reserve that are the head, and I'm talking about the committees here, that are the major federal banks. When I say federal banks, it's the Federal Reserve banks. Uh, They are private institutions. These are for-profit private institutions that are banks. And their job is to raise and lower interest rates at odds to profitability of the same banks sometimes. So this is why the top people in the organization are not bankers. They are appointed by the president, and they're the ones that say, hey, this is what needs to happen. We currently have a Federal Reserve chairman who was appointed by Donald Trump, and if he's up for, he's coming up for re-up, I wouldn't be surprised if Biden says, yep, you're back up again. Because as much as we try to make everything political, the reality is there's still stuff that we do that isn't political. Uh, There's still stuff that we're trying to keep intact, like whether or not laws get enforced and things like that, without a political mindset to it. It's hard. We go through these big shifts every once in a while. So the, the main job of the Federal Reserve is to prevent deflation and too much inflation. They want the power of our dollar to be the, the, the number of dollars in circulation to be appropriate for the amount of value that's moving around so that we don't get way crazy inflation and we don't have way crazy deflation. Now, they have some other responsibilities that they've been given more recently um, to uh, try to keep unemployment low and to try to regulate the volatility of the stock market. But the tools that they've been given for that are pretty limited. I mean, it's not like the Federal Reserve can go out and start hiring people beyond what they need. And it's not like the Federal Reserve is allowed to go and buy stocks in the stock market to calm that down. They're not. There's some rules about what they're allowed to buy and sell. So part of what they do is saying to the marketplace what they intend to do so that there's no surprise later on. And for a long time when the Federal Reserve talked, they would tell you on the day that they were doing the thing, the thing that they were doing, and that would cause the market to react drastically. And over the last about 15 or 20 years, they've been saying in advance, hey, you know, two weeks from Thursday, we're going to tell you we're going to raise rates or we're going to lower rates or something like that. And then a week from Thursday, we're going to tell you exactly this. And then on the day that they tell you, they also tell you exactly that. And that's to prevent massive reactions in the market. Give it three weeks of time to kind of equalize Uh, on this new move. The Federal Reserve has these responsibilities. The Treasury Department has those responsibilities. They do work together sometimes. Like the Federal Reserve is the main arm of uh, disciplinary action and enforcement on banks. Well, the Treasury also does that. So quite often they work together in that role. And I hope that that kind of gave the delineation well because the Federal Reserve is there to be apolitical 
and worry about the power of our inflation no matter who's president. Well, the Treasury is trying to do what Congress is telling them and the president is telling them at the same time. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, well, the Treasury is the people who borrow the money that funds the and, and collect the money that funds the bills that are passed by Congress. In essence, that's what they do. That's their primary mission. And balance that, balance that all out and pay the debts, which kind of leads us into the next question. Yeah, we got a question from Hal. The question is, we repeatedly hear, this level of spending is creating debt our children and grandchildren will bear. There's a lack of appreciation for what that means. Please address those implications. Hal. Thank you, Hal. Good question. Debt is fascinating. Um, when we measure debt at a governmental level or at a corporate level or at a domestic level, it's different in different countries. It's different. Um, but the most different that you can do between corporate and domestic debt and governmental debt is in the United States of America. If you're in China, it's not that different what government debt you have than what corporate debt you have. And people, you're going to have to bear with me a second on this. If you're in um, Cambodia, same thing. If you're in Russia or Germany, same thing. Because what do they do with their money when they have a surplus? If they have more money than they need, they do what we've heard about from China and Japan and Germany and everybody else for a long time. You mentioned it in passing that there's a lot of people sending money to the U.S. Treasury. People all over the world, governments all over the world, buy U.S. government debt. So what would the government do if it had a surplus? What would it do with the money? Would it buy its own debt? It can't. It would be like canceling out its own debt, which would be a disturbance in the economy. The United States government has no way to actively save money other than in weird commodities type situations. Gold is not money. The government owns a lot of gold. Uh, they own a lot of real estate. They own a lot of stuff. But if they kept it in money, it would change the value of the money. This is very strange, I know. So when we talk about corporate debt or domestic debt in the United States, we're in a different situation than talking about the same things elsewhere. Corporate and domestic debt, um, and government debt for that matter when you're talking about it, if you see debt rising faster than income consistently over a long period of time, it doesn't matter if you're in the unique situation of the United States or anywhere else, that's a bad sign. It means that you're taking on a lot more debt than you're going to be capable of paying at some point if the trend continues. Right now, a, go ahead. There's a peculiarity about this. We're at 100 we're over, we're over 100% of GDP in our debt right now. In 2000, we were at 34% of GDP in terms of debt, which sounds like that we our debt is becoming uncontrollable. But there's a weird thing that's happened. We are, we are paying, as a percentage of GDP, the federal government is paying a lower percentage by far of the GDP to, for debt service than it was in 2000. In 2000, oddly enough, the United States was paying almost 15% of GDP in debt payments. That sounds ridiculous, but that's where it was. And it's, it's actually below zero right now. The amount of money that we're paying for debt payments is lower than inflation. 
Yeah. So the interest on the debt right now for for federal budget for the fiscal year 2021 from October of 2021 through September, I'm sorry, October of 2020 through September of 2021. How do we know this in advance? Because there's contracts on the interest rates. This is one that's really easy to predict. That's uh, $378 billion. And when we say uh, the size of the U.S. budget for 2020, 2021, we're talking about $4.79 trillion. So you're talking about uh, right around 8% of the budget is in um, interest payments. $4.79 trillion is a lot of money, just as a side note, in case you guys didn't realize that trillions of dollars is a lot. Um, it is really, 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 really big. It's bigger than a bunch. Yes. Bigger than a bunch and more than stuff. It is big. So... Uh, when we're talking about debt that's getting passed down, there's a couple of things that we need to look at. What's the interest on the debt? This is the same thing I would say if you're looking at your car loan or your credit cards, or if you're at the corporate level and you're looking at your bonds, what could you call? Um, if you're looking at the interest rate and you say there are lower interest rates available today than there were then, you've refinanced the debt. If the overall interest rate that you have on your debt is lower than what's being offered anywhere, then you pay it off slowly. If the interest on the debt is getting high, you need to really start paying it off. This is, this is a kind of across the board. If you've got credit cards, if you're a corporation, or if you're a government. Well, we are still at something like all-time lows, if you don't count the very bottom of the pandemic, for interest rate on the debt. We are not saying it's a great idea to borrow money forever and ever and lots more money every year, but this is something we said at the end of the Great Recession, and we're saying again, even though we know Congress didn't do their part at the end of the Great Recession, we had these big stimulus acts. That's the first step. The second step is coming back in later and, and paying the debt off. Well, we didn't do that part, and if you listen to our radio program in 2019, we've got recordings up. You can go to a website and see them or hear them. We're talking about now's the time to pay off debt. When you're at the top, when the market is going strongly, you've got good revenues. We lower taxes instead. Now, problem with, go ahead. The problem with paying off the debt, it means raising taxes. and People don't like that a bit. Yeah. And that's where we are, is that at some point, easy borrowing stops if you're having trouble paying it back. We're not at that point yet in the United States. Nobody can believe that we will be at that point, which means we have to be careful not to be at that point. If nobody believes it, it's more likely to happen. So the more afraid we are about the debt that we are handing down to the next generations, the better. Um, so what do we do to get out of the debt? We got a big chunk of debt. We're paying a lot of money in stimulus packages right now and raising taxes at this moment would be a really not good idea across the board. It will take our recovery and at the very least slow it down. And if it does more than that, it could push us back into recession. So this is a, this is a sticky wicket. This is a tough one. We got to get out of debt. But for the short term, we actually have to spend more. 
And if I were talking to a corporation and giving them advice, and they're saying we have a lot of debt, but if we spend this money right now on retooling our, our, our factory floors, infrastructure spending, as it were, and um, educating our workforce, we think we're going to recoup that and be able to pay the debt back later. Well, that's a great idea, but you also have to change your price structure. You're, if you're going to spend this money, eventually you have to raise prices. Otherwise, nobody's going to want to loan you money. And in the case of the government, the infrastructure spending we're looking at, the education spending that we're looking at, those are very good long-term investment goals. But we're also going to have to raise taxes. And no, that's not popular. And when, and when I say it, you know, people go, Jake, you want us to raise taxes? I don't. I really don't want, on a personal level, I don't want to pay any more taxes. I really don't. I'm happy with the taxes. No, I'm not. I would like them to be no taxes on a personal level. But the reality is that if we're paying to support the economy through this pandemic, which could have been the worst financial collapse in the history of the world, if we hadn't supported it the way we had through government spending, it's, it's really hard for me to say we shouldn't have spent that money. Because when we look at the fact that unemployment kept a lot of businesses open, not because their employees were on unemployment, but because the, employee, the employees of someone else that got laid off still had money to buy food and to buy furniture and to buy other things that they wished to buy, whatever that might be. Let's, let, we'll, we've got more to talk on that subject, but we got a lot to talk about. If you'd like to join the conversation, the email address in here is jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. That is Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie, or The Personal Wealth Coach. And we'll be back on the other side. And we're back with more of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. We are both McClure's. We are both bald. We both have our brains firmly stuck in the niche of economics. Finance. We both have beards. Yeah, we both have beards. Your Don't beard. Get that. His beard is white. My beard is very dark with, with some salty streaks. That's just food you left in your beard. Okay, boomer. You see, you see what I did there? I was doing a millennial thing, even though I'm not one. So we're also a father and son. Uh, I've been in the business for 30 years now, 31 years. Nope, 30 years. You've been in the business for forever, eight years longer than that. So 30, you know, 39 years. You're, you're coming up on the 40. I am. Goodness gracious. So we've been doing this a long time and we're a father and son team, which is crazy because that means that we're both alive and there's some kind of miracle in having a father and son work together for 30 plus years without killing each other. Let me talk a little bit more about the national federal debt. Go for it. Federal federal debt cannot be looked at by itself. For instance, if you are a young couple, you're and you buying a house and you're buying cars, and you look at your total debt, the average cost of a house in the United States right now, I think, was three hundred sixty-two thousand dollars, and you throw in a couple of cars for thirty-five thousand dollars a piece, or even twenty thousand dollars a piece, piece not peach. Uh, you're talking at $400,000 debt very easily. I'm just trying to go back to those are expensive peaches. 
Very they expensive are. peaches. What did you say? A hundred and what thousand dollars a peach? No, 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 no. I'm saying about twenty to thirty thousand dollars to buy a car. Oh yeah. You got but, two cars. You got two cars. You got a house. So you got about four hundred thousand dollars of outstanding debt. As soon as you have kids, you have future debt that pops up that counts because you got to put them through school at some point. So your debt is absolutely through the stratosphere. As a matter of fact, it's probably, let's say you're making $100,000 as, as a couple. Your debt could easily be four times your income, which on the surface of it looks terrible, but it's not because these are investments that you need to make. And, and this if is- If you can make it, it's a good idea. Now, the no, same thing is true with the federal government. Uh, when I started my career, it wasn't even a career at that point. I was just working the reception desk desk 30 plus years ago. Um, it was pretty normal to look at the value of a house and have it be a one-to-one equivalent to the income of the people that lived in the house. Yeah, that was a standard. So if you had a $100,000 house, it was likely that you had $100,000 of income. And that went all the way up the spectrum, at least that much. So that if you had a small, a young, a younger couple that were in like a $50,000 house, which isn't as bad as it sounds because back then there were $50,000 house, houses that are kind of the equivalent of $200,000 houses today. Not in size, but in, in propensity, the number of them out there. So th- this concept of the debt now, if you're a young couple and you're making $100,000 a year and you've got $400,000 of debt or $200,000 on your house, that sounds horrible, except the interest rates are significantly lower today than they were then. So when someone gets debt, it's not about the amount of debt. It's about the payment on the debt. When you buy a house, you don't say, I want an $800,000 house until you figure out what the payment on that $800,000 house will be. And that's the same when you look at payments on any kind of debt. It's called carrying cost. It's basically how much carrying cost can you handle on a debt. And when you borrow money, it's a, if, particularly if it's at a fixed rate. Now, if you get a variable rate loan, which I don't think anybody in the right amount of beginning right now, but some people probably still do. You get a variable rate loan, then it's variable. It's not a fixed interest rate. But when the United States loans money, or when the United States borrows money, I should say, it gets a fixed interest rate on its, on its notes and its bills and its bonds. Right now, if the United States rolled all of its uh, debt over into 30-year bonds, it would still be right around the cost of expected inflation over the next 30 years. In other words, the United States right now is able to borrow money for free. No interest. Yeah, and if that if that money is used for good investment purposes, and you might think, well, paying unemployment and paying stimulus is not a good investment purpose. It certainly is a good investment purpose. The fact that we didn't do it in 1929 is what caused the Great Depression. Yeah, I got a nice chart for you on that. The Wall Street Journal on their front page digitally right now has this as the chart. Uh, it's the inflation-adjusted 10-year Treasury yield. So we're talking about the yield curve is steep; that it's a positive number. If you apply inflation to it, and inflation index yield is applied after 2003 and way back to 1990, they were looking at core inflation rate pulled out of it. If you adjust for inflation to go back to 4%, which is what we were paying in 1990, we're at the equivalent of negative 0.88%, 0.88% on our 10-year note. 
if you apply inflation to it. So that's an important piece. It's important to know what your actual carrying cost is. If you have debt that the interest rate is less than inflation on, then if a client comes to me and said, hey, I just refinanced my house for 2.5% inflation or 2.5% interest rate, and I say the long-term 50-plus year average on inflation is like almost 4%, that means the bank's practically paying you money to borrow that money. And unfortunately, a lot of people say, well, I'm going to try to pay it off early. That's not necessarily the best move. It could be a good move. It depends on where you are in prioritization and so on. But that, we're about out of time. Oh, my goodness. If you would like to contact us off the air, uh, our webpage is thepersonalwealthcoach.com. The local number is 254-947-1111. You can email us at jeff or jake at tpwc.com.